Chapter 17 of The Making of a Bigot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Making of a Bigot by Rose McCauley. Chapter 17 Conversion. On Midsummer Eve, which was the day before his marriage, Eddie had a number of his friends to dinner at the Moulin d'Or. It had amused him to ask a great many, and to select them from many different quarters and sets, and to watch how they all got on together, for many of them were not in the habit of meeting one another. The vicar of St. Gregory's, for instance, did not, in the normal course of his days, as a rule come across Billy Raymond or Cecil Lemoyne with whom he was conversing courteously across the table. Bob Traherne, his curate, seldom chatted affably with conservative young members of Parliament, such as Neville Bellairs. Mrs. Crawford had long since irrevocably decided against social intercourse with Eileen Lemoyne, to whom she was talking this evening as if she was rather pleased to have the opportunity. Bridget Hogan was wont to avoid militant desirers of votes, but tonight she was garrulously holding forth to a lady novelist of these habits who resided in a garden city. Eddie's friend, the young Irish unionist, was confronted and probably outraged by Blake Connolly, Eileen's father, the nationalist editor of the Hibernian, a vehement-tongued, hot-tempered, rather witty person with deep blue eyes like Eileen's, and a flexible, persuasive voice. At the same table with Bob Traherne and Jane Don was a beautiful young man in a soft, frilly shirt, an evangelical young man who at Cambridge had belonged to the CICCU and had preached in the marketplace. If he had known enough about them, he would have thought Jane Don's attitude towards religion and life a pity and Bob Traherne's a bad mistake. But on this harmonious occasion they all met as friends. Even James Peters, sturdy and truthful, forbore to show Cecil Lemoyne that he did not like him. Even Hillier, though it was pain and grief to him, kept silence from good words, and did not denounce Eileen Lemoyne. And Eddie, looking round the room at all of them, thought how well they all got on for one evening, because they were wanting to, and because one evening did not matter, and how they would not, many of them, get on at all, and would not even want to, if they were put to a longer test. And once again at this, that he told himself was not the last, gathering of the heterogeneous crowd of his friends together, he saw how right they all were, in their different ways and yet at odds. He remembered how someone had said, the interesting quarrels of the world are never between truth and falsehood, but between different truths. Ah, but must there be quarrels? More and more clearly he had come to see lately that there must, that through the fighting of extremes something is beaten out. Someone thumped the table for silence, and Billy Raymond was on his feet, proposing their host's health and happiness. Billy was rather a charming speaker, in his unselfconscious, unfluent, amused, quietly elusive way, that was rather talk than speechifying. After him came Neville Bellairs, Eddie's brother-in-law to be, who said the right things in his pleasant, cordial, well-bred young member's manner. 
Then they drank Eddie's health, and after that Eddie got on to his feet to return thanks. But all he said was, thanks very much. It was very nice of all of you to come. I hope you've all enjoyed this evening as much as I have, and I hope we shall have many more like it in future. After, when he paused, someone broke in with, he's a jolly good fellow, and they shouted it till the passers-by in the Soho streets took it up and sang and whistled in chorus. That was the answer they unanimously gave to the hope he had expressed. It was an answer so cheerful and so friendly that it covered the fact that no one had echoed the hope or even admitted it as a possibility. After all, it was an absurd thing to hope, for one dinner party never is exactly like another. How should it be with so much of life and death between? When the singing and the cheering and the toasting was over, they all sat on and talked and smoked till late. Eddie talked too, and under his talking his perceptions were keenly working. The vivid, alive personalities of all these people, these widely differing men and women, boys and girls, struck sharply on his consciousness. There were vast differences between them, yet in nearly all was a certain fine, vigorous effectiveness, a power of achieving, getting something done. They all had their weapons, and used them in the battles of the world. They all, artists and philosophers, journalists and politicians, poets and priests, workers among the poor, players among the rich, knew what they would be at, where they thought they were going, and how, and what they were up against. They made their choices. They selected, preferred, rejected, hated. The sharp, hard word brought him up. That was it. They hated. They all probably hated something or other. Even the tolerant, large-minded Billy, even the gentle Jane, hated what they considered bad literature, bad art. They not only sought good, but eschewed evil. If they had not realized the bad, the word good would have been meaningless to them. With everyone in the room it was the same. Blake Connolly hated the Union. That was why he could be the force for nationalism that he was. John MacLeod, the Ulsterman, hated nationalists and papists. That was why he spoke so well on platforms for the Union. Bob Trahern hated capitalism. That was why he could fight so effectively for the economic betterment that he believed in. Neville Bellairs hated liberalism. That was why he got in at elections. The vicar of St. Gregory's hated disregard of moral laws. That was why he was a potent force for their observance among his parishioners. Hillier hated agnosticism. That was why he could tell his people, without flinching, that they would go to hell if they didn't belong to the church. He also, Eddie remembered, hated some writers of plays, and that, no doubt, was why he looked at Cecil Lemoyne as he did. Cecil Lemoyne hated the commonplace and the stupid. That was why he never lapsed into either in his plays. Mrs. Crawford hated errors of breeding, such as discordant clothes, elopements, incendiarism, and other vulgar violence, and that was why her house was so select. Bridget Hogan hated being bored. That was why she succeeded in finding life consistently amusing. James Peters hated men of his own class without collars, men of any class without backbones, as well as lies, unwholesomeness, and all morbid rot. That was probably why his short, unsubtle, 
boyish sermons had a force, a driving power, that made them tell, and why the men and boys he worked and played with loved him. And Arnold, who was not there but ought to have been, had hated many things, and that was why he wasn't there. Yes, they all hated something, they all rejected, all recognized without shirking the implied negations in what they loved. That was how and why they got things done, these vivid, living people. That was how and why anyone ever got anything done, in this perplexing, unfinished, rough-hewn world, with so much to do to it and for it. An imperfect world, of course. If it were not, hate and rejections would not be necessary. A rough-and-ready, stupid muddle of a world, and incoherent, astonishing chaos of contradictions— but, after all, the world one has to live in and work in and fight in, using the weapons ready to hand. If one does not use them, if one rejects them as too blunt, too rough and ready, too inaccurate, for one's fine sense of truth, one is left weaponless, a non-combatant, a useless drifter from company to company, cast out of all in turn. Better than that, surely, is any absurdity of party and creed dogma and system. After all, when all is said in their despot, it is these that do the work. Such were Eddie's broken and detached reflections in the course of this cheerful evening. The various pieces of counsel offered him by others were to the same effect. Blake Connolly, who, meeting him tonight for the first time, had taken a strong fancy to him, said confidentially and regretfully, I hear the bride's a Tory. That's a pity now." don't let her have you corrupted. You've some fine liberal sentiments. I used to read them in that queer paper of yours. He ignored the fine unionist sentiments he had also read in the queer paper. Don't let them run to waste. You should go on writing. You've a gift. Go on writing for the right things, sticking up for the right side. Be practical. Get something done. As they used to say in the old days, take a business tour through Munster, shoot a landlord, be of use. I will try, said Eddie modestly, though I don't know that that is exactly in my line at present. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I want to get some newspaper work. That's right. Right, the way you'll have public interest stirred up in the right things. I know you're of good dispositions from what Eileen's told me of you, and why you want to go marrying a Tory passes me. But if you must, you must, and I wouldn't for the world have you upset about it now at the eleventh hour. Then came Traherne, wanting him to help in a boys' camp in September, and undertake a night a week with clubs in the winter, and the elegant CICCU young man wanted him to promise his assistance to a prayer and total abstinence mission in November, and Neville Bellairs wanted to introduce him tomorrow morning before the wedding to the editor of the conservative, who had vacancies on his staff. To all these people who offered him fields for his energies, he gave, not the ready acceptance he would have given of old, but indefinite answers. I can't tell you yet. I don't know. I'm going to think about it. For though he still knew that all of them were right, he knew also that he was going to make a choice, a series of choices, and he didn't know yet what in each case he would choose. The party broke up at midnight. When the rest had dispersed, Eddie went home with Billy to Chelsea, 
He had given up the rooms he had shared with Arnold in Soho, and was staying with Billy till his marriage. They walked to Chelsea by way of the embankment. By the time they got to the Battersea Bridge, Billy lived at the river end of Beaufort Street. The beginnings of the dawn were paling the river. They stood for a little and watched it, watched London sprawling east and west in murmuring sleep, vast and golden-eyed. One must, speculated Eddie aloud after a long silence, be content then to shut one's eyes to all of it, to all of everything, except one little piece. One has got to be deaf and blind, a bigot, seeing only one thing at once. That, it seems, is the only way to get to work in this extraordinary world. One's got to turn one's back on nearly all truth. One leaves it, I suppose, to the philosophers and artists and poets. Truth is for them. Truth, Billy, is perhaps for you. But it's not for the common person like me. For us, it is a choice between truth and life. They're not compatible. Well, one's got to live, that seems certain. What do you think? I'm not aware, said Billy, drowsily watching the grey dream city, of the incompatibility you mention. I didn't suppose you were, said Eddie. Your business is to see and record. You can look at all life at once. All of it you can manage, that is. My job isn't to see or talk, but, I am told, to take a business tour through Munster, shoot a landlord, be of use. Well, I suppose truth can look after itself without my help. That's one comfort. The synthesis is there, all right, even if we all say it isn't. After tonight I am going to talk, not of truth, but of the truth, my own particular brand of it. Billy looked skeptical. And which is your own particular brand? I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to find out before morning. I must know before tomorrow. Molly must have a bigot to marry. I take it your marriage is upsetting your mental balance, said Billy tranquilly, with the common sense of the poet. You'd better go to bed. Eddie laughed. Upsetting my balance? Well, it reasonably might. What should, if not marriage? After all, it has its importance. Come in, Billy, and while you sleep I will decide on my future opinions. It will be much more exciting than choosing a new suit of clothes, because I am going to wear them for always. Billy murmured some poetry as they turned up Beaufort Street. The brute, untroubled by gifts of soul, sees life single and sees it whole. Man, the better of brutes by wit, sees life double and sees it split. I don't see, he added, that it can matter very much what opinions one has, if any, about party politics, for instance. Eddie said, no, you wouldn't see it, of course, because you're a poet. I'm not. You'd better become one, said Billy, if it would solve your difficulties. It's very little trouble indeed, really, you know. Anyone can be a poet. In fact, practically all Cambridge people are, except you. I can't imagine why you're not. It's really rather a refreshing change. Only I should think it often leads people to mistake you for an Oxford man, which must be rather distressing for you. Now, I'm going to bed. Hadn't you better, too? But Eddie had something to do before he went to bed. By the gray light that came through the open window of the sitting room, he found a pack of cards and sat down to decide his opinions. First he wrote a list of all the societies he belonged to. They filled a sheet of note paper. 
Then he went through them, coupling each two which, he had discovered, struck the ordinary person as incompatible. Then, if he had no preference for either of the two, he cut. He cut, for instance, between the League of Young Liberals and the Primrose League. The Young Liberals had it. "'Molly will be a little disappointed in me,' he murmured, and he crossed off the Primrose League from his list. "'And I expect it would be generally thought that I ought to cross off the Tariff Reform League, too.' He did so, then proceeded to weigh the Young Liberals against all the socialist societies he belonged to, such as the Anti-Sweating League, the National Service League, the Eugenic Society, and many others, for even he could see that these two ways of thought did not go well together. He might possibly have been a socialist and a primrose leaguer, but he could not, as the world looks at such things, be a socialist and a liberal. He chose to be a socialist, believing that that was the way, at the moment, to get most done. Very good, he commented, writing it down. A bigoted socialist. That will have the advantage that Traherne will let me help with the clubs. Now for the church. The church question also, he decided, without recourse to chance. As he meant to continue to belong to the Church of England, he crossed off from the list the Free Thought League and the Theosophist League. It remained that he should choose between the various church societies he belonged to, such as the Church Progress Society, High and Modernist, the ECU, High and Not Modernist, the Liberal Churchmen's League, Broad, and the Evangelical Affiance, Low. Of these he selected that system of thought that seemed to him to go most suitably with the socialism he was already pledged to. He would be a bigoted high church modernist and hate broad churchmen, evangelicals, Anglican individualists, ultramontane Romans, atheists, and particularly German liberal Protestants. Father will be disappointed in me, I'm afraid, he reflected. Then he weighed the Church Defense Society against the Society for the Liberation of Religion from State Patronage and Control, found neither wanting, but concluded that as a socialist he ought to support the former, so wrote himself down as an enemy of disestablishment, remarking, Father will be better pleased this time. Then he dealt with the Sunday Society, for the opening of museums, etc., on that day, as incongruous with the Lord's Day Observance Society. The Sunday Society had it. Turning to the arts, he supposed regretfully that some people would think it inconsistent to belong both to the League for the Encouragement and Better Appreciation of Post-Impressionism and to that for the Maintenance of the Principles of Classical Art or to the Society for Encouraging the Realistic School of Modern Verse, and to the Poetry Society, which does not do this. Then it struck him that the Factory Increase League clashed with the Coal Smoke Abatement Society, that the Back to the Land League was perhaps incompatible with the Society for the Preservation of Objects of Historic Interest in the Countryside, that one should not subscribe both to the National Arts Collections Fund and to the maintenance of cordial transatlantic relations, to the Charity Organization Society, and to the Salvation Army Shelters Fund. Many other such discrepancies of thought and ideal he found in himself and corrected, either by choice or, more often, so equally good did both alternatives as a rule seem to him to be, by the hand of chance, 
It was not till after four o'clock on his wedding morning, when the midsummer day sunrise was gilding the river and breaking into the room, that he stood up, cramped and stiff and weary, but a homogeneous and consistent whole, ready at last for bigotry to seal him for her own. He would yield himself unflinchingly to her hand. She should, in the course of the long years, stamp him utterly into shape. He looked ahead, as he leaned out of the window, and breathed in the clear morning air, and saw his future life outspreading. What a lot he would be able to accomplish now that he was going to see one angle only of life, and believe in it so exclusively, that he would think it the whole. Already he felt the approaches of this desirable state. It would approach, he believed, rapidly, now that he was no longer to be distracted by divergent interests, torn by opposing claims on his sympathy. He saw himself a writer for the press, but he really must remember to write no more for the conservative press or the liberal. He would hate conservatism, detest liberalism. He would believe that socialists alone were actuated by their well-known sense of political equity and sound economics. In working, as he meant to do, in Datchard's settlement, he would be as fanatically political as Datchard himself had been. Molly might slightly regret this because of the different tenets of Neville and the rest of her family, but she was too sensible really to mind. He saw her and himself living their happy, and he hoped not useless life, in the little house they had taken in Elm Park Road, Chelsea, they had not succeeded in ousting the inhabitants of the Osiers. He would be writing for some paper, and working every evening in the Lee Bridge settlement, and Molly would help him there with the girls' clubs. She was keen on that sort of thing, and did it well. They would have many friends. The Belair's relations and connections were numerous, and often military or naval. And there would be Neville and his friends, so hard-working, so useful, so tidy, so well-bred, and their own friends, the friends they made, the friends they had had before. It was at this point that the picture grew a little less vivid and clearly outlined, and had to be painted in with great decision. Of course they came into the picture, Jane and Billy and the rest, and perhaps some time, when she and Molly had both changed their minds about it, Eileen. Of course they would all be there, coming in and out, and mixing up amicably with the Bel Airs contingent, and pleasing and being pleased by Neville and his well-behaved friends, and liking to talk to Molly and she to them. Why not? Eileen had surely been wrong about that. His friendships weren't, couldn't be, part of the price he had to pay for his marriage, or even for his bigotry. With a determined hand he painted them into the picture, and produced a surprising, crowded jumble of visitors in the little house, artists, colonels, journalists, civil servants, poets, members of parliament, settlement workers, actors, and clergymen. He must remember, of course, that he disliked conservatism, atheism, and individualism, but that, he thought, need be no barrier between him and the holders of these unfortunate views and any surprisingness any lack of realism in the picture he had painted he was firmly blinded to so molly and he would live and work together work for the right things war against the wrong he had learnt how to set about working now learnt to use the weapons ready to hand the only weapons provided by the world for its battles using them he would get accustomed to them 
Gradually he would become the complete bigot, as to the manner born. Such a power has doing to react on the vision of those who do. Then and only then, when, for him, many-faced truth had resolved itself into one, when he should see but little here below, but see that little clear, when he could say from the heart, I believe tariff reformers, unionists, liberals, individualists, Roman Catholics, Protestants, dissenters, vegetarians, and all others with whom I disagree, to be absolutely in the wrong. I believe that I, and those who think like me, possess not merely truth, but the truth. Then, and only then, would he be able to set to work and get something done. Who should say it was not worth the price? Having completed the task he had set himself, Eddie was now free to indulge in reflections more suited to a wedding morning. These reflections were of the happy and absorbing nature customary in a person in his situation. They may, in fact, be so easily imagined that they need not here be set down. Having abandoned himself to them for half an hour, he went to bed, to rest before his laborious life. For let no one think he can become a bigot without much energy of mind and will. It is not a road one can slip into unawares, as it were, like the primrose paths of life, the novelists, for example, the poets, or the tramps. It needs fiber. A man has to brace himself, set his teeth, shut his eyes, and plunge with a courageous blindness. Five o'clock struck before Eddie went to bed. He hoped to leave it at seven, in order to start betimes upon so strenuous a career. End of chapter 17 End of The Making of a Bigot by Rose McCauley